This is The Rounds Table. Happy New Year, Roundtable listeners. Thanks for joining us again and for being patient during our time off over the, over the holiday season. We're back with part two of our 2017-2018 season, and we're going to start it off with a bang. We're going to do a rapid-fire style show today, and none other than Mike Fralick, who is a fellow at the Brigham and Women's College in Boston, is back to join us. And he's going to rip it and rock it today with us. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kieran. Happy to be here. So, Mike, we're going to be rapid. Jump right in. we got four articles to cover. Strap in, hold on tight, and let's get rolling. Oh, perfect. So, first up, association between use of DOAX uh, with and without concurrent medications and risk of major bleeding and non-valvular AFib. Uh, this is a study published in JAMA in October of 2017. First author is Dr. Um, Shang Hun Chang. Okay, Mike, what's the research question here? So they were curious um, specifically about uh, the risk of major bleeding among patients with non-valvular AFib who are receiving DOAX, NOAX, whatever you want to call them, in combination with medications that share a similar metabolic pathway. So they're trying to tease out whether or not drugs that should interact and potentially cause harm with NOACs, if that actually bears out in the data. Okay, and why is this important? Well, I feel like these drugs are everywhere and they are clearly efficacious, but are also associated with an increased risk of bleeding. And it's hard to know who's going to have a bleed, who isn't going to have a bleed, and we're never going to have a randomized trial um, to answer this question. So I think that's why this is a really important topic. So take us through how they went about answering this question with their study design and and, uh, details. Sure. So this study was uh, out of Taiwan using their um, national insurance database. It was a retrospective cohort study, and essentially to enter into the cohort, you had to have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and then receive a prescription for either dabigatran, rivaroxaban, or apixaban. So that totaled 90 some odd thousand patients. Um, So their exposure of interest, so everyone was on one of those medications, and then the exposure was one of 12 medications that share a metabolic pathway with a NOAC. So those included um, drugs like atorvastatin, verapamil, diltiazam, um, clarithromycin, erythromycin, among other drugs. Their outcome of interest was major bleeding. They define that um, as a hospitalization or a merge visit for either intracranial hemorrhage, GI bleed, or uh, another source of uh, uh, bleeding. So... How do they analyze this complicated interaction and outcome measure? Yeah, it certainly was complicated. Um, Essentially, what they did was they generated propensity scores, so the probability of getting one of those 12 medications, and they tried to match patients based on the probability of them getting, for example, let's say phenytoin versus the propensity to not get phenytoin, and they used that score to match individuals using something called inverse probability of treatment weighting, which is uh, complex, and we can leave it at that for now. Okay, so tell us, Mike, what did they find? 
So in their study, nearly 5,000 people had a major bleeding event. That's, you know, 5% of patients. That's quite high. And in terms of the culprit medications where there was an increased risk of bleeding, the main culprits were amiodarone. So for example, if patients were prescribed amiodarone versus not, they had a 40% increased risk of bleeding. If they were prescribed fluconazole versus those who weren't, um, they had a doubling in their risk and similar increased risk with rifampin and phenytoin. So, you know, almost a, a doubling of risk of bleeding. And to give you a relative sense, it was sort of bringing the risk, let's say for um, uh, phenytoin, for example, of 50 bleeds per thousand patient years without phenytoin versus 108. So that's like 58 additional bleeds. So pretty impressive effect sizes there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, retrospective, not an RCT, what are the main limitations you wanted to point out? Oh, for sure. So for the limitations, definitely the issue with confounding control, whenever you're comparing patients who were prescribed a medication versus non-users, not only are they getting the medication, but there's a reason why they're getting the medication. So is it the medication or is it the illness that's the indication for um, the medication However, they did some really cool stuff where they then did an analysis where they swapped, rather than looking at patients on a DOAC, they looked at patients on Losartan. And they looked at Losartan plus any of those 12 medications. And if you saw an increased risk of bleeding with those, then you'd think, okay, this is just unmeasured confounding. But interestingly, when they did that analysis with Losartan, there was no increased risk of bleeding with any of those potential you know, medications that could cause interaction. So that was kind of a, a cool way to uh, partially address the effect confounding was having. But there's other important limitations. There's big questions about the external generalizability. This is in an Asian population, and we know that the way that drugs are metabolized, that the various enzymes and the levels of the enzymes can definitely vary based on geographic location. So, uh, for example, it's CYP3A4, that's a major metabolizer of most of the DOACs, and a lot of the drugs that they looked at in this study were inhibitors, uh, and thus would increase the plasma level of the DOACs and potentially cause bleeding. So, there's just sort of questions about how will this apply in a North American population, for example. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so a lot of drugs, a lot of interactions, a lot of results. Take it home for us, Mike. What do you, what do you want listeners to take away? Yeah, the take-home point, really, I would say there's two or three drugs you should really be mindful of prescribing for patients who are on DOAX. Those medications are amiodarone, phenytoin, also known as dilantin, and fluconazole. Those were the three main drugs where there was certainly an increased risk of bleeding and a fairly sizable increased risk of bleeding. And certainly in the case of phenytoin, for example, there's a lot, uh, there, there's many other um, seizure medications you could pick. So I think that's an important take-home point, just trying to remember those three drugs. So you're saying that the report by Freilich et al. in CMAG about clarithromycin and rivaroxaban wasn't something that maybe we should be concerned about as much in the greater context of an Asian population, at least. Yeah, fair enough. Um, in this study, interestingly, clarithromycin, although it's a CYP3 a4 inhibitor and inhibits P-glycoprotein, there was no increased risk with clarithromycin. 
But maybe that's because, well, A, you know, who's using clarithromycin, but maybe that's sort of selecting for a patient who is less sick, and clarithromycin's a very short-course antibiotic, as opposed to something like phenytoin, you're probably on that chronically amiodarone, you're probably on that chronically, uh, and fluconazole, a, a longer duration, but um, Fair yeah. point. Absolutely. So practice changing for you? Yeah, you know what? It actually is. It's really hard for me to remember a long list of uh, anything, uh, medications included. Uh, but this study actually kind of gave me a succinct list. Phenytoin, amiodarone, fluconazole. I need to be very mindful about prescribing any of those drugs. And really, as an internist, it's more so phenytoin or amiodarone. So yeah, those are kind of now on my list of uh, meds to kind of like watch out for. Absolutely. The flags go up, especially when you're using amiodarone in somebody with atrial fibrillation for rate control. So definitely something to be to be mindful of. Okay, round two, Mike. Uh, what's your next article on this rapid fire rounds table? Yep. Continuing on with the same theme, um, this study is entitled Oral Anticoagulants for Prevention of Stroke in AFib, uh, Systematic Review, Network Meta-Analysis, and uh, Cost-Effectiveness Analysis. And this was published in BMJ in 2017. I read this with great interest and even tweeted about it, which I rarely do. Mike, tell us what was the research question on this study. Their question, uh, what is the comparative efficacy, safety, and cost-effectiveness for DOACs in patients with atrial fibrillation. So take us through the study design. Uh, I think we know why this is important. We've already talked about the prevalence of DOACs and atrial fibrillation is common. So how did they go about answering this question? So their study design, as mentioned, kind of included those um, three levels to it. Um, their network meta-analysis only included data from randomized controlled trials. So that's just important to keep in mind. And um, they excluded drugs like Durexaban, Latexaban, Herbaxan, which I've never heard of before, but apparently those are like the next OX to enter the market anyway. So they just focused on Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, um, Dabigatran, and Anadoxaban. And um, network meta-analyses certainly caused some confusion in my brain. The sort of take-home point for a network meta-analysis is that Let's say you have a study of rivaroxaban versus warfarin, and you have another study which is warfarin versus dabigatran, but you have no studies that compare rivaroxaban to dabigatran head-to-head. The question is, how do we make a comparison between those two? So what a network meta-analysis does is it finds, is there a common link? And the obvious common link in a randomized study of, you know, dabby versus warfarin and warfarin versus rivaroxaban now you have a network via warfarin because warfarin is shared by the two studies. So um, that's the kind of cool part about a network meta-analysis is it allows for, you know, these indirect head-to-head comparisons when you don't have trials that give you a clean head-to-head comparison. Right. The, the analogy always in my brain is if A equals B and B equals C, you're asking the question, does A equal C? Sounds right to me. All right. So what was the outcome uh, that they measured in this complicated spider's web of anticoagulants. So the primary outcome included risk of stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, MI, mortality, bleeding, and cost effectiveness. So very relevant endpoints to patients, healthcare providers, and our health system as well. Absolutely. And who were the patients? What did they look like in the multitude of trials? Yeah, so very similar to the last study, 90,000 some odd patients, average age of 70, and these patients had multiple comorbidities. So 
you know, two-thirds in this case had high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, one in five had a prior stroke, and these data were drawn from 23 randomized trials. Um, 13 of the trials included DOACs, and you might wonder, well, what's in the other 10? The other 10 were earlier studies that were like uh, high-dose aspirin versus warfarin, um, for example. And uh, it's important to note that all of the DOAC studies were industry-sponsored. Okay. And what were the main results then that they found? Yeah, so there's a lot of information that, that comes out of this. So trying to distill down maybe three or four of the big-ticket items The first big ticket item is that all the DOACs had better efficacy compared to warfarin. That was clear, and we're talking a 30% risk reduction for stroke or systemic embolism, which is impressive. The second key piece of information is that all of the DOACs were also associated with decreased overall mortality compared to warfarin. Uh, Again, that's very impressive. Um, Third really important point, all the DOACs had a lower risk of bleeding than warfarin, with maybe one exception, and that being rivaroxaban. So those are three really key points. If we have space for a couple more, apixaban seemed to come out of here as a shining star in terms of overall the best bleeding risk when you compared it to other DOACs, and also probably the best in terms of efficacy. Now, it was also the most expensive drug, but when you ran the cost-effectiveness analysis, its cost was offset by its gains in terms of its efficacy. Okay, and any main limitations you wanted to point out there, Mike? Um, I think, you know, with any meta-analysis, obviously a meta-analysis itself is, you know, it's, it's observational in nature, and we don't have any head-to-head DOAC comparisons, and I think that's like really important, but the data just aren't there and they probably won't be there for some time. They didn't include any studies of the high quality kind of real world studies. So I always wonder how do risks and benefits differ when we're looking at a non-trial setting, but overall a very impressive network meta-analysis. Cool. So what's the take-home point? Are you an Apixaban man now? Yes, Apixaban for the win. Uh, That is the (laughs) take-home point here. Um, The only other take-home point is I feel like there needs to be just sort of a stop on subsequent meta-analyses on DOACs. This we we have we have what we need here. No more. We've bled it to death. I think exactly, exactly. Um, so that's that's the other take home point. If anyone's looking for a research idea, it's not. Let's do another meta analysis on DOAX. All right, point well taken. Let's move on. Round three. I'm going to take you over here and talk about two articles today that are not DOAC related. The first is a comparison of hospital resource use and outcomes when you're comparing the different types of physicians who care for patients in general medicine. This was published by Jennifer Stevens in JAMA Internal Medicine in November of 2017. Great. And what was the research question for this study? They were asking the question, does the type of generalist physician caring for a hospitalized patient, that being the patient's primary care physician, a hospitalist, or another covering outpatient generalist, affect patient outcomes in and out of the hospital? Yeah, and that, I mean, seems like a very relevant question. I think uh, certainly for the uh, American uh, listeners in the Canadian system, it's a general internist who's looking after the vast majority of inpatients, whereas obviously in the U.S., the general internists, they're more so kind of like the equivalent of our family docs in, in Canada. But why was this important for you, Kieran? Well, overall, the importance of continuity of care um, is, is debated fiercely. 
And, you know, our healthcare systems around the world are increasingly high-paced and ter- physician turnover is quick. So the question really is, is it better to have a doctor who knows you well or does it matter? And I think this is important in the context of designing healthcare systems. And specifically from a U.S. perspective, hospitalists and the hospitalist model increased rapidly from 9% of patients looked after by hospitalists in the early 90s to over half now, 58% in 2013. So they're looking to evaluate this, this sort of care model in the healthcare system. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a tricky question to answer. So what what was their study designed for this one? Yeah, a tricky question. Uh, a retrospective cohort study with Medicare patients in the U.S. Um, and they took the 20 most common diagnoses treated by three different physician types that I mentioned already. So the primary care physician, uh, the hospitalist physician, or another covering outpatient generalist. So this was just looking at over just over half a million ad- admissions in about 4,500 hospitals in 2013. Uh, 60% were cared for by hospitalists, 14% by GPs, and 26% by outpatient generalists. And remember that those outpatient generalists have no knowledge of the patient or the hospital system within which in they're working. They're sort of like a fly-in locum, so to speak. Just so you know how sick the patients were, 30% of admissions included an ICU stay and 10% died by 30 days. So a fairly sick but somewhat typical general medicine patient, I would say. Um, Now, interestingly, at the baseline, before they did any kind of fancy matching and adjustment, patients looked after by non-primary care physicians were sicker and had overall higher 30-day mortality rates. So they're, they're not the same patient at the baseline. But after you tried to adjust out all of those differences that you could measure, um, they found that general practitioners had lower 30-day mortality even after you adjusted for all of these factors that may contribute to mortality, although it was a small difference, so about a 6% lower risk overall or an odds ratio of 0.94 for mortality. Now, if you were cared for by somebody who was not your primary care physician, nor were a hospitalist uh, at the center, so these outpatient generalists, you're, you had a higher risk of death of about 9% uh, increased odds uh, by, if you were cared for by them. So there's two ways to look at this. First is, is the hospitalist model more effective? So who do I want looking after me at a policy level? I don't think this study adequately answers that question because there's too many other moving parts in evaluating a model of care. So for example, what would happen if we made all general practitioners care for inpatients that they looked after in the community, and how would that affect their increasingly complex outpatient environments and the the outcomes on those patients? So I don't think you can really say, oh, this puts a nail in the coffin for a hospitalist being not an effective model of care. I don't think that this study answers that. But it does suggest, and something that I believe firmly, that continuity and familiarity with your practice environment appears to have some importance in the care of patients. The magnitude of that effect, I'm not really sure we're really can be clear from this study, but I think that it, it's really demonstrating a signal that continuity is important. Where that continuity comes from, that can be debated, but this demonstrates the principle that I think continuity is important. Yeah. So is this practice changing for you? Or are you now going to um, admit your patients and then follow them um, when they're out of hospital and then follow them when they're back in hospital? Um, how has this changed the life of Dr. Quinn? That, well, this serves my confirmation bias and the belief of continuity in that the five-minute phone call that I make 
to my patients that are admitted overnight and I meet the next day. That five-minute phone call to their family physician, I think, is very important, and I'll continue to do that uh, to, to at least introduce some element of continuity from somebody who knows them better than I. And also, just in my own personal practice, when I'm on service uh, on the general medicine ward, I try to stay on for a longer period of time than some of my colleagues. So I try to do a four-week run instead of two weeks because the patients that are admitted under me and stay longer than two weeks, I somehow believe that the continuity that I can provide to them will improve their overall care or maybe their satisfaction in other unmeasured ways. Yeah, I can, I can buy that. All right, what do you have next for us? Okay, round four to finish it all up. This is looking at the association between treatment by what we call locum tenens, uh, who are internal medicine physicians, and 30-day mortality uh, among hospitalized Medicare beneficiaries. This was published by Daniel Blumenthal in JAMA, yeah, also in November of 2017. Okay. Yeah, the word tenens, like that just means nothing to me, but uh, apparently that's just what I guess we would be called. Well, so the take-home point, one of the take-home points, but we'll, we'll move it up front, is that I learned that locum tenens is a Latin term that means to hold a place. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Wise words, wise words. Okay, so what was the research question for this study? So they wanted to know if there were systematic differences in the quality of inpatient care provided by locum tenens versus non-locum tenens internal medicine physicians. Okay, and why is it important to study these locum tenens? Well, Mike, much like the trends in hospitalist medicine practice, which we saw in our previous study, the use of placeholders, i.e. these locums, for hospitalists are also on the rise. And so it's important to evaluate if the care and outcomes that these physicians provide are somehow different than the non-locum physicians. Yeah, and I feel like you and I f- fit the bill of locums depending on when we're working. So Exactly. And, and where we're working. All right, so, so how did they study this uh, question? So also much like our previous study, this was a retrospective cohort of Medicare patients in the U.S., and they looked at the exposure, so to speak, of individuals who were treated by locums and individuals who were treated by non-locums, both who were general medicine patients. So, okay, so main results from this study? So, a large cohort of 1.8 million Medicare admissions that were treated by general internists. Uh, 2% or 38,000 received care from a locum tenens physician. And another way to sort of flip that on its head is 9% of general internists were temporarily covered by a locum tenens physician at some point. So you can think about it from the patient's uh, perspective or how many physicians were covered. Now, you did not have any differences in the patient characteristics between the physician groups. And subsequently, you didn't see any differences in 30-day mortality. So both groups had roughly an 8.7% mortality at 30 days. Costs are important. Locum spent $125 more per patient. Uh, Their patients stayed half a day longer on average, but they had slightly lower 30-day readmission rates. So those are sort of some of the secondary outcomes that may or may not be sort of true findings or significant findings, but that is what we get from the data. Okay, cool. Uh, And main limitations from this study? Well, these are macro-level findings. These are really, really high-oriented at uh, policy-level kind of questions. Much like you pointed out previously, patient and physician satisfaction and other micro-level measures just simply aren't accounted for, which can be very important in the care of patients. Uh, It just depends on the lens in which you apply it. The other thing that's really important just as far as the external generalizability is concerned So a locum tenens in the United States is defined as somebody who requires uh, 60 days or more of coverage, where in Canada, a very common practice for locums is to do a sort of one-night overnight coverage. 
So just be careful in or be cautious in how you uh, interpret these findings because there is still some level of continuity and familiarity with their environment when it comes to practicing for 60 days or more. Yeah, that's an important point because I was just going to, you know, pat myself on the back for, you know, the work I do when I go up to Sault Ste. Marie. This uh, this study kind of shows that I'm, you know, just as good as the regular docs up there, but maybe, maybe not after all. Yeah, yeah. And I had to point it out to one of my other fellow colleagues uh, when he was doing the same pat on the back. And I said, yeah, just be careful because it's not necessarily applicable. But hey, we all have our confirmation bias. Go for it if you like. It makes you feel better and sleep at night. Okay, so um, aside from the Latin wisdom you've bestowed on uh, me and, and the listeners, any other take-home points? Well, I mean, overall, there does not appear in this study and in this patient population to be meaningful differences in what we would call hard patient outcomes like mortality when treated by locum docs. Although, kind of as a combination of the two studies that we've just talked about, I wonder if we can draw any inferences about the outpatient generalist as a surrogate for a locum, or if it's helpful to refute the findings of the previous study. Now, obviously, they're not directly related, but it's kind of a, maybe we can network them some way and do a meta-analysis to figure it out. That sounds complex. I'm going to have to not be a part of that study, but um, but I agree, it would would be cool. And and is this practice changing uh, for you, or what are you going to do differently? Well, I think, you know, overall... There's not much I'm going to do differently per se when it comes to my one-night locums. But it's reassuring in a slight sense, I guess, that locums are probably providing similar care, um, even if it's, you know, shorter than they do in the United States. And I think that just goes to show that, you know, all physicians work hard. They are doing the best that they can. And this data helps to support that uh, with the limitations that we've discussed. Yeah, no, it is. It's an interesting study. You know, like when I do go up to Sault Ste. Marie, there's internists that look after patients, but there's also the family doctor who knows this patient and they will look after their own patients in hospital. And that kind of blends closer to this type of study in the last one as well. But you're right. I mean, it is something uh, definitely uh, interesting and, you know, how this is going to affect policy, I guess we'll see. Yeah, the, the differences between the previous study we're looking at different physician types, like their specialty training, to get a kind of a continuity picture. This study compares general internists locum versus non-locum, and that's sort of what I was trying to, Im- you know, imbibe a, uh, a network together to say, well, what happens if you have locums versus general physicians versus GPs all in one kind of practice center, which is common for us in Canada? Well, it's my favorite time uh, on the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. But today's good stuff is a little different, listeners, as we are talking with a very special guest. His name is Dr. Zeev Kane, and he's a Chancellor's Professor and Director of Value-Based Healthcare in the Health Policy Research Institute at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Kane, welcome to the rounds table. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're here talking about an innovation in the healthcare system that aims to improve the quality and value of care for surgical patients. Specifically, Dr. Kane has published on his experiences with something that's called the perioperative surgical home. Now, Dr. Kane, can you please describe to the listeners the fundamental components of what a perioperative surgical home is? Sure. A perioperative surgical home is an innovative clinical model that takes the surgical episode of care and unites all its components. 
It decreases uh, clinical care variability. It optimizes the patients for the surgical episodes, and it coordinates the care throughout the entire process. And how is a perioperative surgical home different from the traditional perioperative care that a patient might receive uh, in the current day? Typically, in a, a surgical episode, there are more than 60 providers who touch the patient, and those typically don't communicate to each other. The idea here is to have a patient that from the minute there is a decision for surgery, you optimize the patient, that is, you take all their underlying diseases and make sure that they're optimized. You then prehabilitate them. We start with stop smoking, uh, physical therapy, and then you risk stratify them to find out which one are the most at risk. The idea is not to take them to surgery before D3 are done. Then you take them into the operating room. And again, you manage them based on evidence-based protocols, specifically enhanced risk recovery, goal-directed therapy. On the post-operative side, that's the side where many patients develop complications. And one of the reasons is because there is no real coordination between the surgical services, the hospitalist services, and more patients are, are left to the devices of interns at late at night. So the idea there is really to create teams that are managing the patients based on fixed protocols. And then perhaps the most important part is once the patient goes home, many medical directors of insurance companies like to say that they are going into the obese, basically. Nobody knows they went home. And because of that, 20% of these patients will be readmitted. So with this model, before the patient is being sent home, we communicate with the primary care provider we tell them what happened, we tell them what to watch for, and we make sure that they don't come back. So if I have it correctly, it sounds to me that the perioperative surgical home is a means to break down the silos of care that exist in healthcare in the current day and age, and it provides a centralized center for where care is provided and the healthcare providers are able to directly communicate with each other about their shared patients um, along with a set of standardized perioperative care protocols to ensure that the quality in the delivery of care is achieved. Is that, do I have that correct, Dr. Kane? You absolutely have it correctly. So Dr. Kane, you've published on your experiences with the perioperative surgical home, most recently in an article in anesthesia and analgesia. Tell me, what are some of the benefits that you've seen in an evidence-based fashion on the perioperative surgical home? In fact, we have now published four papers in anesthesia and analgesia in two separate centers and on different procedures such as joint replacement and laparoscopic cholecystectomies. And what we have seen is A, reduction of length of stay, B, reduction of readmission rate when the patient comes back, C, these patients are more likely to go home rather than to a rehabilitation center, and last but not least, these patients are more satisfied from the care that they have received. Well, that sounds like a very important outcome in the age of patient-centered care. Tell us, Dr. Kane, how do you envision the perioperative surgical home being integrated into surgical care more broadly across the United States and potentially North America or even the world? The perioperative surgical home has to be viewed within the context of value-based care. And the value-based care is very simple. A value equals outcomes divided by cost. And that's where our healthcare is moving to. When you take that value-based care model, it has three components, a financial component, an operational component, and a clinical component. To me, the perioperative surgical home, as well as enhanced recovery, 
are both clinical models of value-based care. And they really fit very well with that much larger conceptual framework. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show to tell us about this innovative uh, initiative. Is there anything else that you think that we should know about the perioperative surgical home? No, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a model that uh, its time has arrived. Its origins are certainly with enhanced recovery that was developed by Hendrik Hellet in Denmark. That model did not catch fire in the United States because of the various politics. However, with the introduction of value-based care, these innovative models are much more likely to be implemented. Well, we certainly eagerly await the implementation of a perioperative surgical home, and perhaps we can look at bringing it into Canada. As far as I know, we don't have it in any of the major centers that I'm aware of. But Dr. Kane, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our Good Stuff this week, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Same here. Bye-bye. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Mayer, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us.